Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, why racial disparities could affect one common genetic test. Plus, cutting down on sugar, the new recommendations for kids and teens. And are you satisfied with your job? Turns out the answer can have a big impact on your health. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, August 26th. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. We begin this week with concerns over a common genetic test. In this case, we're talking about a test for a potentially deadly heart condition known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, it's also known as HCM, uh, is an inherited thickening of the left ventricle of the heart, and it occurs at a prevalence of about 1 in 500 people in the population. It's perhaps most notorious as a cause of sudden cardiac death in young athletes, but it really can affect patients of all ages and lifestyles. That's Arjun Manrai, a research fellow in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. He recently authored a paper looking at genetic testing for HCM. Manrai says this type of testing has greatly improved the ability of doctors to detect heart anomalies like HCM, which often don't have any symptoms. But when it comes to HCM, Manrai and his team looked at results from one lab and found that these tests would often lead to a disproportionate number of misdiagnoses among black Americans. So let's take a step back and explain how these tests work. Basically, they look for certain genetic variants that have been linked to HCM. But there's a complication. As Manrai explained a moment ago, HCM occurs in about 1 in 500 people. But the variants linked to the condition are found in 1 in 4. So many people can have the variant but not have the disease. These are called benign mutations. And Manrai's research found that false positive tests for HCM were far more common among black Americans who also have more benign mutations. That's because much of the basis for these genetic tests come from inadequately designed clinical studies that use predominantly white populations as control groups. Using statistical simulations, researchers showed that including even small numbers of black participants in the original studies would have improved test accuracy. This really speaks to the value and the need to use diverse population sequencing data and also to reevaluate what are now 10 to 15, sometimes more years of studies that have uh, supported uh, the genetic literature about HCM. And the impact of these potential misdiagnoses can be significant. As Manray explains, a false positive not only affects the person being tested, but can also affect entire families. For example, let's say there's a 45-year-old father who's been worked up by the cardiologist and has been diagnosed with HCM. Then uh, if he's then tested in, in a genetic lab for the presence of one of these variants found to be positive, then maybe his three sons, you know, there's a good chance they'll also be tested. Um, and if, let's say, his eight-year-old son has the same variant, then he'll he might get lifestyle recommendations to avoid competitive sports, things like that, uh, plus close cardiac follow-up, even if he doesn't have expression of the disease. He might, even if he has kind of moderate or mild expression of the disease, uh, we might uh, even initiate some type of uh, pharmacological therapy to, to, to help, uh, depending on the, the specific circumstances. And then the, the sort of flip side of that is, let's say he has two other sons, the 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, who do not have the variant, um, then they'll essentially, uh, you know, often be given a clean bill of health that they're not at risk for the disease. And so when we you see what we, we found in our paper, which was the reclassification of what was believed to be a disease-causing variant uh, as one that is not, it invalidates all three of those assessments, right? So it invalidates 
both the use of the variant in saying that someone is at risk for the disease, as well as the use of the variant in saying someone is not at risk for the disease, because those people might have another variant that is actually responsible for the familial risk for uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So what can be done going forward? Manray says scientists are actually in a good position because there are now an array of information from large-scale DNA sequencing projects. These databases have genetic data on tens of thousands of people. And Manrai says scientists should be able to use these more racially diverse populations to cross-check genetic test results and discern between harmful and benign variants. This week, there are concerns that Zika virus is spreading across Florida. In recent weeks, health officials have been tracking cases in and around Miami, but now officials say they found a case of mosquito-transmitted Zika more than 260 miles away in Pinellas County. Workers in that area are now going door-to-door, testing residents, and mosquito spraying and other control efforts have been launched. There's a new push to cut down on the amount of sugar in the diets of American children and teens. The American Heart Association is recommending that those between the ages of 2 and 18 consume no more than 25 grams of added sugar a day. That's about 6 teaspoons worth. And it's being recommended that children younger than 2 consume no foods or drinks with added sugars. Currently, the average American child gets between 50 and 75 grams of added sugar each day, double or triple the recommended amount. A big culprit is sugar-sweetened beverages such as soda or fruit punch, which can contain 40 grams per can. High sugar consumption during childhood has been linked to increased cholesterol levels, weight gain, insulin resistance, and fatty liver disease, which can all increase a person's risk of heart disease in adulthood. Experts say that the total sugar content often shown on U.S. food labels is usually all added sugar, with the exception of some dairy or fruit items. Starting in 2018, the FDA will start requiring food labels to specifically list the amount of added sugars. Despite an increase in heat waves, the number of hospital admissions for heat stroke has declined significantly in the U.S. in recent years. That's according to a new study from Harvard Chan researchers who examined data from 23 million Medicare beneficiaries between 1999 and 2010. Heat stroke is a serious and life-threatening illness that often occurs when patients have a core body temperature over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. In the study, researchers calculated the relative risk of heat stroke among older adults during heat wave days compared to non-heat wave days. Researchers found that over time, the risk of heat stroke declined with notable geographic differences. The risk was highest in the northeast, while it was lower in the south and southwest. They also found that heat waves early in the summer were more likely to result in heat stroke admissions than those later in the season. According to Francesca Dominici, professor of biostatistics and senior associate dean of information technology at the Harvard Chan School and the senior author of the study, there could be several reasons for the decline. Greater awareness of the risk of heat stroke, expanded use of air conditioning, and the potential that climate change is making people acclimate more easily to higher temperatures. Despite the decline in heat stroke admissions, Dominici says the increasing frequency of heat waves underscores the importance of public health messaging urging people to seek cool places during hot temperatures. So I think there is the need to, especially for the elderly population, for physicians and the public, to be more aware that heat waves are coming, are going to come more often, and whatever they happen, they should be indoor. 
In addition to this messaging, Dominici says that public housing authorities across the U.S., especially those serving low-income elderly residents, should seek to expand implementation of air conditioning. And finally in this episode, are you very satisfied with your job? It turns out the answer to that question could have a big impact on your health, especially if you're in your 20s and 30s. And there's a reason we're putting the emphasis on very there, and we'll explain that in a moment. The findings come from researchers at The Ohio State University who looked at U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data on job satisfaction dating back to 1979. They followed the job trajectories of people from the age of 25 until age 39, sorting them into four groups. People with consistently lower job satisfaction, people with consistently higher job satisfaction, people whose satisfaction started low but trended higher, and those whose satisfaction started high but then declined. And researchers found that those with lower job satisfaction levels through their late 20s and 30s had worse mental health compared to those with high satisfaction levels. And those people whose job satisfaction declined over time also had worse health. They were more likely to report depression, sleep problems, and excessive worry, and scored lower on a test of overall mental health. And here's the interesting twist. The lowest group did not necessarily report low satisfaction levels at work. Rather, they were just lower than those who were, quote, very satisfied with their jobs. In fact, researchers say the majority of people in the study were either very satisfied or satisfied. Lead study author Jonathan Durlam told CBS News that the main takeaway is that you're likely to have worse health if you don't love your job rather than if you hate your job. And for the record, I am very satisfied with my job. It's good to know. Just driving for health here. Very satisfied across the board. <laughs> That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. A reminder that you can always listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. <laughs>